everybody. Thank you for joining the Todd Sylvester Inspires Belief Cast podcast. I'm so excited to have you guys listening in today. I have one of my favorite people on here who has an incredible story. His name's Dave Dorsher. He's the managing director of the Other Side Academy. And you know, I've had so many people on here with some amazing stories. Wait till you hear Dave's. I, I, I cannot wait. It's uh, one of the toughest, probably you know, stories that I've heard in the sense of how difficult his life was, but what he's doing now and how he's overcome it and all the help he does around the world now, it's just incredible. And uh, I, I also consider him a really good friend and a mentor. And uh, so welcome, Dave, to the show. Oh, thank you, Todd. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. We're here bright and early. He's usually out running six miles, but uh, he sacrificed his uh, morning run <laughs> to be with me today. It's a much-needed day off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if ever you needed an excuse on a Monday morning to, yeah. to, to stop running, but uh, but thank you so much. It's You're really, welcome. truly my honor. Um, I've had Dave come speak to my groups here at Wasatch uh, a few times now, and it's been, it's been the highlight of uh, the people who are here, the clients. I mean, they're still talking about it. You are here just a few days ago. And we can't stop talking about it. We've processed what you've said in so many groups mm. since you left. Now that means um, a lot. Well, it was just kind of a you know a wake up call for our clients, right. and you, because you've been through some stuff, and they can relate to that. Yeah. So it was really cool. So anyway, thanks for being here, my friend. Oh, it's an honor. Yeah. Thank you for asking. So thank you for having of, me. let's get the listeners. I want them to get to know you, obviously, a little better. Uh, maybe give us a little background, like kind of where you grew up, a little bit about your family. And, you know, we'll kind of get into your story here in a minute, but just a little about that. I was born in Anaheim, California, uh, a long time ago, 1966, so I'm 51. Um, but I grew up in Cerritos, which is a small suburb, suburb just east of L.A., right on the border of L.A. and Orange County. Okay. But I spent a lot of my time in Orange County. I loved going to Huntington Beach and Costa Mesa, but primarily Cerritos, California. Okay. Um, I've got an older sister, Darlene DeRocher, and I've got a younger brother, Jason my mom and dad will be married 55 years this August, and that is in spite of my best efforts to completely destroy <laughs> that marriage on countless uh, right. occasions for many, many years. How they made it through everything that I put them through is still a mystery to me today. They didn't deserve right. the, uh, the the trouble and the turmoil and everything I put them through, and the fact that they made it is just a, it's a miracle. More so than me getting to this point, yeah. them getting through what I put them through yeah, was more of a miracle. miracle. <laughs> yeah, that's the miracle. How about your, your siblings? How did they, were they go through such a rough time like you did? They didn't go through a time as much as I did. Both experimented with drugs. My brother did drugs for a few years. My uh -huh. sister did some with her uh, boyfriend for a while too. And we all kind of did it together. But they both kind of stopped and grew out of it while I grew into it, if you right. will. Right. And, uh, and my life just spiraled out of control. But they ended up getting their lives together quite nicely. Right. Much sooner than I did. I was a little bit behind the curve. <laughs> so how did your parents parent? Were they Were they... Were they strict, tough parents? Were they kind of in-your-face parents? Or were they kind of more step back and let you do your thing? My parents, I, I was like Dennis the Menace. <laughs> my criminal career started before my drug addiction. I was one of those kids, I just was completely out of control. And I, as I look back on it now, I can't say exactly why that was. I can kind of pinpoint why I started to use and how I was feeling at that time in my life. But I can't pinpoint why I was the kind of kid that I was prior to my drug use. And my mom and dad did the best they could. Right. My mom was more loving. My dad was more strict. And there's no manual for 
raising children, especially right. raising somebody like me. So I don't think they really <laughs> knew how to handle me. Right. They tried many different avenues. They tried restriction. I was literally in prison for you know complete summers in my room on restriction for an entire summer, weeks <laughs> at a time, months at a time. Right. So I was already doing time in my cell, if you will, in my room well wow. before I ever was getting incarcerated. Wow. They didn't know what else to do. Yeah. They'd lock me in my room. I'd I'd get out. They'd yeah. go out the window. I'd go out, the, you know, when they weren't, I just, I was just one of those types of kids. Right. So they did everything they could. And I think that dad, uh, he obviously did the best that he could, but he didn't know how to, how to deal with me. And I think the, uh, verbally things got out of hand at times. And, you know, and I, I love my parents. So I, I sure. want to be careful how I, yeah. you know, but I, it was very difficult for them. Very, yeah. very difficult for them to try to figure out how to deal with somebody like me doing the things that I was doing at such a young age. Yeah. It made it really hard on them. Sure. And I want, and we're definitely going to get into that part of it, but let's go back again to your childhood, even before maybe the criminal, well, maybe the criminal stuff was going on when you were younger, obviously, but what were some other things you liked doing? Let's, I mean, did you like to play sports? Oh, did you read? Did you, I was, what did you do? So I'm an, I love baseball. Baseball okay. is my passion. That's I love right. the game. And I played little league. My dad coached two of my two of the two of the years, and we won the national or not national championship, but the city championship on one of them. And I remember, I'll never forget rounding third base. It was the championship game, and sliding into home safe. Game was over, and looking up at my dad and remembering that euphoric feeling, like, oh my uh, God, I just scored sure. the winning run. We just won the championship. He was always there. He was always trying his best with me. Yeah. Um, so baseball was definitely a passion. We had dirt bikes. I loved to, to dirt bike and ride motorcycles. Um, and we did a lot of other stuff. You know, I was yeah. I loved hobbying and building those model rockets that, you oh, know, yeah. had the solid rocket propellants and I'd shoot them <laughs> at the helicopters and the cops would all come. And that was another thing I was doing that, you know, yeah. drove my parents yeah. completely crazy. But, you know, my life was good. My my childhood was good. My parents were, were good parents, you know. Right. They really were. They both worked in the aerospace industry. Dad worked at Hughes Helicopters in Reno Del Rey. Mom worked at McDonnell Douglas. I'm sorry. It, Dad worked at McDonnell Douglas and then Hughes Helicopters in Reno Del Rey. Mom worked at Hughes in uh, okay. Fullerton. So they both were hardworking. Hardworking. Yeah. yeah, very much so. Yeah. Did they have high expectations for you? Did they expect certain things? They did. They, yeah. they, they expected me to do well. And I, I think I was doing well at least through elementary school and, and maybe into junior high school. And that's when the wheels kind of started to fall off. Yeah. You know, I was, I was getting into... I was seeing girls in junior high school and having sex in junior high school. And then when I got into high school, I had gotten a girl pregnant. We had an abortion and then got her pregnant again a year and a half later. And that's when I had my first son. So I was already experimenting with women and sex way, way too early, way right. too early in my life. And it sure. kind of, I think, was the catalyst for me going off the deep end. You know, really? it was just, okay. I was not mature enough emotionally for those types of responsibilities. Yeah, and especially I, at that age, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. that's a huge one for kids, you know, as they start uh, getting involved with boys or girls, you know, it's so dangerous. It's such a slippery slope. And right. once you start down it, there's no coming back. Yeah. So th did that ha did that kind of stuff happen before you got into some criminal activity? Or did they kind of go hand in hand? Yeah. That I, you know, when I was six or seven years old, I remember I would I'd leave the house and, you know, back then you'd go out, you'd play and, you know, mom would open the door and, you know, dinner or lunch or whatever yeah. it was. Uh -huh. I was the kind of kid that would be way down the street and I'd be like breaking into people's houses that I knew weren't <laughs> home to do, to just to go in and right. ransack the rooms and ransack the kitchen and just take little, 
uh, cameras or electronics, whatever it was back then. I was just that kind of a kid. What? How How young were you when you first did that? I, like, if I had to put a, if I had to guess, I'd say I was between five and seven. Wow. I'd just go through the gate in the backyard and I'd look for a door that was open and I'd enter the house. It was the craziest thing, yeah. you know. And I was it like a rush to you? I mean, it what, was. was it? Yeah. 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 Probably the same <laughs> as it is for an adult doing it today. <laughs> You know, it's what I did. And, you know, yeah. I didn't, that didn't last. You know, I was also the kind of kid that would steal mail out of mailboxes around the same age, six, seven, eight years old. And I always knew around the holidays that was the time to do it because those, those envelopes had cash in them. So I was already stealing money at an early age, well before I ever started to drink or use. It's just what I was doing. Yeah. You know? Did uh, anyone have an idea? Did you hide it really well? Did your parents have oh, any no, clue? You were ransacking the yeah, neighbors? <laughs> I eventually got caught and got in trouble. Uh -huh. I was also the kind of kid that would steal from mom and dad. And I remember right. once I stole some money from my mom out of her wallet. And she confronted me in my room and she says, David, did you take that money out of my wallet? And I said, no, you didn't. I said, no. She says, empty your pockets. Well, I did that and there was nothing in my pockets. She said, take your shoes off. <laughs> and I did and there it was. <laughs> well, I don't, how did that get there? You're like, oh, wow, that's weird. You know? yeah. So it was that kind of thing growing up. Yeah. And I think as a result of it, mom and dad, like I mentioned earlier, didn't know how to deal with me. How do you deal with a kid like that? What do you do? Yeah. You know, you, you lock yeah. him in his room, you sit him down, you have conversations, you show him some love, you show him some discipline. They did all of that. Yeah. Nothing worked. Nothing worked. I just, I just... Well, most kids that age are playing with their Legos and yeah. digging a hole in the backyard. Well, I did that too, but then yeah. I started him on fire. <laughs> <laughs> you wow. know? Yeah. Trash cans on fire in the room. Yeah. It was just that type of, uh, I was, I don't know, yeah. maybe it was written into my DNA. I, I can't say for well, sure. Well, did you have some friends at that age where you were kind of doing it together or were you kind of solo? Yeah, I did have friends at that age, but I did that stuff by myself. Really? Yeah. Okay. Because usually you're like, a couple mm -hmm. buddies, hey, let's go ransack this house. That came later. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> But you just kind of on your own. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows, right? Why yeah. that happened? I, I can't. Like I said, I can't explain why I was doing that at that mm -hmm. age. But I can explain why I started to feel less than and maybe uh, uh, low self-esteem. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it was because of the way I was being disciplined because of the things I was doing. Right. You're, you know, I, I realize now that how impressionable we are when we're, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, right. early teens. And I think the the discipline and the verbal ramifications that came with it as a result of the way I was living mm -hmm. made me feel less than. And that's when the drinking started, the smoking started. That's when I started to veer away from some of the good kids I was hanging out with and I found the wrong kids to hang out with. And that's really when yeah. it all started to go really downhill. Not that it was already not on its way, right. yeah. but that's when it really started to get bad. Okay. Well, that's kind of what I want to get into now, kind of the meat of your story and just want the listeners to kind of understand, you know, kind of the road you started going down and then what that led to. And it's remarkable, you know, when you guys hear this, it just blows my mind of how you survived. I mean, every time I hear your story, it blows my mind how you made it out of there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just unbelievable. I look back on it now too and I, and I wonder how or even sometimes why yeah. I made it through all of that when... So many people that were living such good value-centered lives uh, don't make it through things far less than what I made it through. Right. And, you know, some people have a lot of uh, uh, turmoil and a lot of bad things happen in their life. You know, bad things happen to good people. Right. I sometimes wonder if I even deserve to be here today after all, all the damage I've done and all the relationships I ruined and the kids that I didn't raise. Yeah. But, you know, for me, I guess, should I just start with where yeah. the... 
I, I was 12, I think, when I started smoking cigarettes. And I would be on the side of the house. It would be at school. You know, I just you know, would, would smoke a cigarette or two a day. And, right. you know, eventually I turned into a pack a day. And then I remember my dad would have his alcohol on his, it was like a little makeshift bar. And I would start sneaking alcohol out of his decanter. And I would replace it with water. And I did that for a while. And I think eventually he caught on when he would come home from work and he'd have a drink. But he was no longer getting buzzed. And he probably couldn't figure out why. And was like, God, what was going on? I must be an alcoholic or something. Yeah, really? And uh, eventually he caught on that I was drinking and just replacing Mm. the alcohol with water. And uh, I don't remember all of the conversations that ensued. I just remember that I was talked to uh, numerous times about that. And, of course, as a child, I promise I'll stop. I won't do it again. Right, right. And then, of course, I continued. And not long after that, uh, I met some kids. As I was veering away from those who were good in my life that I grew Mm -hmm. up with to the kids that were smoking, drinking, smoking pot. And I remember the first time I smoked pot, I think I was 13 years old and we were on the side of a house in Cerritos. Mm -hmm. And uh, I smoked a joint and a half and I was in like a a clubhouse on the side of my friend's house. And when it was time to leave, the parents were coming home, I couldn't get over the fence. I was so stoned. I'll never forget it. I was completely stuck. I could not get over the wall, but we couldn't go the other way because the parents had come home. Right. And uh, eventually I got some help and got over the wall and I saw, I was so stoned. I said, I'll never do this again. I was miserable. I hated right. the way it made me feel. Right. I get home, I go to my room. I'm like stuck in my room. Like, oh my God, what did I do? That's how it felt. Yeah, right. Of course, the next day I did it again. Right. And then the next day I did it again. And pretty soon I'm smoking yeah. pot every day. And then uh, at 14 years old is when I did my first line of cocaine. Mm. And, uh, well, that's a young age to do something like that. Yeah, and I thought I found heaven. You know, yeah. for anybody who's done coke, I mean, it's such a euphoric feeling. And I yeah. thought that I was, you know, all those feelings of inadequacy and low self-esteem mm. were gone. I right. mean, at least for five minutes and then yeah. the next couple hours are miserable. But, <laughs> you know, but at 14 or 15 or 16 years old and as I was going through junior high school and high school, that was an, that was an expensive habit to, to, for sure. to keep up with. Yeah. I literally stole everything that wasn't bolted down. I got jobs at 14 and 15 years old at uh, Avenue 3 Pizza, at Stuff Pizza, and I'd get the job, and I'd work there for a while, and then I'd start stealing money out of the till. I actually went into my dad's wallet and took his uh, uh, the uh, combination to the safe, broke into the safe and took his money. It didn't matter what it was. I, I was a good-looking kid back then with long blonde hair, and you know yeah. the neighbors all liked me, and I would manipulate yeah. the la- neighbors into giving me money. I would give them stories like, I gotta buy my mom and dad a Christmas present, I gotta buy this, I gotta buy wow. that. I would literally manipulate all the neighbors into giving me money. It didn't matter yeah. what it was, somehow, some way, I got what I wanted and continued yeah. to feed my habit. And as the years went on, the habit continued to get worse. Now, granted, there were some breaks in there where I was clean, where I would stop, you know, for right. short periods of time. Yeah. And I remember my parents, they were sending me to a, uh, a therapist. His name was Mark, and he happened to be in Anaheim. I was 16 then, and I was driving, and we had a van. And they would send me to him. They were going, at first they were going with me, and then Mark said, that's okay, he can come on his own. This, besides, this is about him. Right. And on the way down Nornstorp Boulevard to get on the 91 freeway, there was a gas station. That's where my connect was at. So I'd pull into the gas station, I'd buy my Coke, I'd do my couple of lines, and I'd head to Mark, and I'd go to my therapy sessions, and he never knew the better. Wow. And he would give my dad reports that Dave's doing much, much better, Ray. He's doing much better. <laughs> He's a very mean, confident kid. Yeah, meanwhile, I'm <laughs> high on coke and it's, it's in my pocket. And right. I completely had Mark snowed. So it didn't wow. matter who it was or what they tried to do. Nothing worked. Unbelievable. Wow. Um, and, and 
anyone else know that you were doing drugs other than a couple of your buddies? Or is that yeah, it? yeah the, you know, it's funny how the transition happens. You know, you're in school, you have a good group of friends, and then yeah. slowly you start disconnecting from them. Right. You're no longer hanging out with them. You're no longer having the sleepovers. I'm no longer playing sports to the, to the degree that I once did. Right, right. They start to notice the difference, and of course they start to separate for the same reasons that I'm separating for. Right. You know, and then, you know, the, yeah. the whole friend... Uh, 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 circle was changing and my parents were very very concerned and they as I mentioned earlier tried everything that they could you know from therapy to right. their their own interventions and you know the family sitting down and yeah. all of those things were going on but nothing was working did they know at the time too that you were stealing everything oh yeah okay oh, God, so they yes. knew that as well yeah I remember uh, <laughs> I remember a time I my mom and dad went out to dinner and I had some friends over and you know, friends were starting to come over, and you know, there was girls coming over and guy friends, and uh-huh. I had broken into the safe again, and I'd taken some money again, and I my parents came home earlier than I expected, and as soon as my dad saw me, he knew immediately something was wrong. He went right to the safe, opened it up, saw the money was gone, mm. kicked everybody out. That was a really ugly, ugly evening to say the least. I imagine, yeah. That was the first time I'd seen him cry. Really? And I knew then, oh God, this is really affecting him. I, I noticed it. I, I sensed that this was really affecting him, but it didn't stop me. You know, I, right. I, So later on that night, it, it really wasn't as verbally uh, loud as it had been in the past. They went to bed and I called my buddy and he came over and we connected the, the trailer of motorcycles to his truck when my parents were asleep. And I took all the motorcycles. We went to Palm Springs and I just took off. So it was that kind of thing. I was, gotcha. it, was, it was one thing after another, you know, it was just continually uh, being right. just a rotten, bad kid, yeah. you know, for were lack you, of a better Were you phrase. getting your schoolwork done? Were you getting homework School. done? Were School was easy. To? School was really <laughs> did you easy. you lie and cheat through that whole yeah, thing I did. as well? Yeah, I did everything yeah. I could. You know, I gra- how I graduated is a mystery to me. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I graduated in 1985. You know, I didn't have great grades, but, you know, I had a C average. You right. know, I'd get some Bs. I got an occasional D, but, you know, I got through school. School wasn't hard at all. Yeah. I could it manipulate seems like my back way then, through. And even when I was going to school, it's like, if you just show up and do nothing, you're going to mm-hmm. get a, hopefully a, you know, C, C plus mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. You know, I was also the kind of kid that I remember I would go to school and I would smoke weed ahead of time. I'd do coke at home. But once you start getting hooked on coke, you got to continually do it because the right. high only lasts so long. Right. Then you're constantly chasing that that feel good, I call it. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly going to the bathroom to do coke. And then, you know, I got a little vial and I was the kind of kid that would mm-hmm. sit in class and I'd, I'd sit in the back of class and I'd have my, my, uh, my book, my history book open and I'd pull the vial of coke out and I'd pour the coke between the pages and I'd wait for the teacher to be, you know, facing the chalkboard and I'd pull the big pin apart and I'd just like lean over and snort coke in class. And I literally did this all the way through high school. Wow. Class after class after class. Wow. You know? Unbelievable. No one knew Mm-mm. the wiser. Yeah, just those who, you know, just those who got high with me, but right. not necessarily in class. Okay. Well, let's jump ahead a little bit. Obviously, okay, so you finish high school mm-hmm. and this is probably when things really started to get you know, more difficult, Yeah. you know, and so let's talk about that a little bit. You know, I got a couple of really good jobs right out of high school. I got a couple of good jobs and my mom and dad were both in aerospace. So I was going to join the service. I was really, really close. It was just a matter of going down on Friday night and signing the paperwork and joining the service. I kind of thought in my head that this might be a good idea for me. But my mom, I was also filling out applications to try to get in at Hughes Ground Systems Group in Fullerton. And that same day that I was supposed to go, my mom said, Dave, you got the job. So here I am at 18 years old and I got a great job. Yeah. But as soon as I went there, 
you know, I was still doing coke, and now I'm at this uh, at a government agency at at, at Hughes right. uh, Ground Systems yeah. Group, and I'm doing coke constantly there, going in and out of the bathrooms doing coke. Needless to say, that job didn't last long. I got laid off. It was back in the Reagan days, I think. Okay. I think they knew what I was doing, and that was just their way of getting rid of me. Mm-hmm. But not long after that, I got a job at McDonnell Douglas in Huntington Beach. And I literally was doing coke there every day. And I remember there was a, a loan shark there. And I was able to talk him out of many thousands of dollars. That kept my habit going for a number of weeks, maybe a month. Mm. And I'm married at the time, and I've got a, a, a son. And uh, his name is Christopher. He's 33 today. And I spent every single dollar I made at work on Coke. So we bounced from apartment to apartment to apartment as I'm talking other landlords and people into letting us move in. And it was just a really ugly way to raise a child. Right. And then just like many drug addicts do, I, I think that, you know, if we have another kid, this will solve my problem. And, you know, Trish, my wife at the time, got mm-hmm. pregnant again. And we had my second son, Ryan. Mm-hmm. Um Having Ryan wasn't the mistake, but making that decision to bring kids into the world when I was living the way that I did was a huge mistake. Right. And so often is the case, so many of my students now have done the same thing, and I've learned over many years that we do it. You know, again, it's we, we want to paint this picture that life is rosy, that we're doing well, and if we have children and we can hold them up like trophies, you know, then the family right. and everybody thinks that we're doing well. Right, right. When all it is is a ruse, they're just become chess pieces. And I was the kind of father, I didn't raise my kids, Todd. I, I had children yeah. and I kicked them on down the curb for other people to raise while I chased drugs and girls and, you know, that lifestyle. Yeah. You know what I love about you is you're really, you're not afraid to just admit exactly how it was. Mm-hmm. And and especially around your kids. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're really uh, candid about that. Um, talk about that a little bit. I mean, you had, you ended up having three, was it three kids? I had three total? boys, yeah. Talk about that for a minute. I know this is kind of a sensitive subject for you, um, but you're also not afraid to be real about it. No, I'm not, uh, because I think there's a lesson in it. And I truly believe, if I had my way, I know this might sound harsh, but if I had my way and I could change the law today, if a drug addict is dating another drug addict and they're hardcore drug addicts and they have kids, they should do life in prison. Wow. They should incarcerate them for the rest of their life because it destroys the kids' lives. So I had children, you know, my firstborn was, I was in high school when Christopher was born. Yeah. And I was there at the time of the birth. Not that it mattered, I was high at the hospital. You know, I was going in and out of the bathroom doing dope. And uh, when we brought him home, although I was there for the first five years of his life, I was high the whole time. So I was a horrible, horrible father. Because even if they don't know you're high, you're not acting the way that you should, like a father should. And my priorities were completely askew. My only priority was, how am I going to get my next fix? How am I going to get the money? You know, I was spending rent money on cocaine. I was spending rent money on alcohol. I was spending rent money on gambling. I was spending all the family money on everything other than the family. Yeah. And it affected Christopher a lot. And then, you know, the fighting that would go on between me and Trish, you know, be, between me and his mom, yeah. was con- was constant. Just the constant yelling and screaming. And, you know, I would try to leave the apartment. She'd try to block me in. And then, you know, that just that whole scene was really, really ugly. Yeah. Really ugly. And I don't, you know, I didn't see it then, the impact it was going to have on him. Yeah. And then Ryan, when he was born a few <clears throat> years later, the impact it was going to have on him. And I wasn't even loyal to, to her. 
you know, yeah. just doing drugs and that whole thing. Because you, you, in order to do that, you got to be a liar and a cheat and a thief and manipulating. And, yeah. you know, she would beg and plead and try to get me to quit. And nothing worked. I yeah. didn't care. The only thing I cared about was me. I didn't even care about me. I just cared about what I wanted. Yeah. Yeah. The feel good, you know, as you say, chasing yeah, that. Yeah, chasing that feel good. And then the yeah. more damage I do and the more um, pain I'm in emotionally, the more dope I need to do to mask that. Yeah. You know, and it just becomes a sure. perpetual hell. Oh, yeah. If you will. Well, you know, and kids are so intuitive. They, they mm -hmm. may not know exactly what's going on, but they know something's off. Mm -hmm. You know, they know dad's not there. You know, they might not be able to verbalize it, but they know something's off mm -hmm. and it, it turns their world upside down. It's not safe anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and I know we'll get, we'll get there in a minute about what, where your relationship is with them, you know, but let's c continue with your story. Kind of when, when you finally started getting in trouble with the law and going mm -hmm. to jail and things like that. And yeah, it wasn't long. So I, so I've got the three boys. I have the two boys with my first marriage and then I have, uh, Benjamin who's, I think he's 27 now. Okay. And during the divorce with Trish, I was dating a dancer and of course got her pregnant. Well, you know, I thought, you know, if I have another kid, that this will fix me. So anyway, there's three boys. There's Christopher Ryan and there's Benjamin. Um, a couple of years after high school, I'd continue to do coke and then I found methamphetamine. And when I found methamphetamine, I thought it saved my life because I was doing about an eight ball, maybe a quarter ounce of coke a day and it was just, I was just completely destroying me. It was my... Physically, I was falling apart. It was just a, you know, yeah. I was snorting it every day, and it was, I was a mess. Sure. And then I found meth. Now you could do a line of meth and stay up for, you know, if it was back then in the '80s, right. a couple of days, you know, on <laughs> on methamphetamine. Right, right. And it got me off cocaine. I thought, God, I found, you know, I found something. This this will work for me. Mm -hmm. And that didn't last long because what I ended up doing was, in order to support my habit, you know, I'd buy a little bit of meth and I'd buy a sixteenth and I'd sell a couple quarter grams out of it to support my habit. And I never. In tended to be a drug dealer. Right. But then it was a from a sixteenth it was a, an eight ball a day and then from an eight ball a day it was a quarter ounce a day and then, you know, it was a half ounce a day and then it was an ounce a day and then a quarter pound. And pretty and soon to, Oh yeah, and pretty soon it was you know, I'm just moving pounds of methamphetamine and then I'm getting busted. And I remember the first time I got arrested. it wasn't the first time I got arrested, but it was the first time I got busted for sales. I had, I don't know, a quarter pound of dope and two loaded firearms and wow. I ended up doing two years in prison for it. And I got out of prison, and the minute I got out, literally, my buddy picked me up, and as we're leaving the prison yard, uh, 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 grounds, yeah. I pull the you know stuff out from underneath the seat, and I'm getting high on the way home, and I'm wow. off and running again. And 59 days later, I get arrested again for the same thing, sales and transportation and loaded guns. This time, I got five years, and uh, I left prison. Well, just sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. That's okay. Was, was prison, so obviously you weren't, prison didn't scare you. I was, it seems like. I was nervous the first time I went to prison. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect. Yeah, right. But after a while, it, it started to feel like home. That's where all my homeboys were at. That's where my buddies were at. Uh-huh. Um, and you know, in California, prison's different. It's a hate factory. It's completely different than Utah because the gang uh, uh, influence is so huge. Right. You've got the... Bloods and the Crips with the African Americans. You've got the white power with the whites and the skinheads, and you have the Sedanos and the Nortenos with the Hispanics, and everybody is fighting each other over the control of the prison. Right. So once I got there and started to put some work in mm -hmm. and started to make a name for myself, I started to feel like that's where I belonged. 
Mm. So after my first term, I kind of knew I was going back again. It wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of when. Yeah. So I went out and started doing the well, same thing. Well, it's like you started getting high when you left the prison the yeah, first time. I, I knew I was going back. Yeah. You know, and then the second prison term was a five-year term, and I got out after that, was only out for two months again, and got a six-year term. Six years. Did that one and got out again, and I was out for four months and did a 10-year term. So it was a two-year prison term, a five-year prison term, a six-year prison term, and a 10-year prison term. Back to back to back with very little time out in between terms. And I, you know, I got all the tattoos to, to, uh, to show for it. A lot of the political tattoos while I was inside, mm -hmm. which you have to earn while you're in there. So I was making a name for myself in prison. Right. And I didn't realize then what I was actually doing was building a reputation. And it took me many years once I got out of there and went through Delancey Street to realize that a reputation doesn't mean shit. The way that you build your reputation is the more bad you do, the greater your reputation. But I had no character. And the more good you do is how you build your character. Gotcha. And it yeah. took me a long time to realize that, you know, many years going forward. But what I was doing in prison was building a reputation. Yeah. That I was willing to fight, that I was willing to stand up for the cause, that I was willing to, without going into greater detail, be violent. Mm. Uh, yeah. Inside the walls. Yeah. And, and even outside. Yeah, I can only imagine how that would be. I mean, I, I think I never served any jail time or prison time in my in my life, and uh, I, I was always really afraid of that, mm -hmm. you know, but uh, that's why I asked You're that smarter question. than me, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. You I know, always tell I you that, but scared. it's true. I was just scared. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, so to, let's get into that prison time and kind of what led up to Delancey Street, which is a remarkable story in itself. And let's talk about how you even got accepted there mm -hmm. and kind of go through that process for so, our listeners here. After the two-year prison term, the five-year prison term, the six-year prison term, the 10-year prison term, I got out for four months and I had told myself on many occasions that if I ever get uh, red-lighted again, if the cops are ever onto me again, I'm gonna commit suicide by cop. Because I know after my first mm -hmm. four prison terms that when I get busted again, I'm probably gonna go away for the rest of my life. So I'm in Huntington Beach, I'm at a house, I'm upstairs, I'm weighing up some dope, it takes me a few hours, and I'm looking out the window, and I see a helicopter. Now, usually helicopters are hovering all over the city, just kind of patrolling. Yeah. This helicopter is way, way up in the sky, and it's just sitting there. And I noticed it when I first went into the bedroom. <laughs> Hours go by. I'm done weighing everything up. I've made all my phone calls. I'm getting ready to leave, and that helicopter's still there. Wow. You know, and, it, and I'm thinking that maybe it's there for me, but no way. If they were there for me, they'd have already come into the house. Right, they would have got you already. Yeah. So I leave, I go get my car, I take off, and the minute I leave the house, they obviously didn't want to come into the house for whatever deal they had struck with the girl who lived there. But there were cop cops everywhere, sirens blaring. And I knew then, this is it. I'm taking these cops on a high-speed chase. I'm going to try to get to the bridge on Hamilton in Huntington Beach and throw all of the dope and everything out the window and into the uh, the wash. Uh -huh. You know, find it. If they find it, they have to prove it's mine. That that was my rationale. <laughs> right. But I wasn't going to stop. There was no way, because I know when I do, I'm going back to prison for the rest of my life. So we went on a... It wasn't a high-speed chase, but it was a... It, there was times when I was going fast. Right. And I was, you know, displacing cars at red lights, and I was going through red lights, and I was doing everything I could to get away. But the cops were everywhere. And I remember that same helicopter now, I could hear it in my vehicle. It had come down and had the spotlight in my car and it was making it almost impossible to drive. And I was panicking. It was loud, it was scary. Wow. I, I could hear the commands to pull over. Wow. I could see sirens at every intersection and I got to the corner of Magnolia and Atlantic. 
and I was making a left-hand turn, and I was getting closer to my destination to get rid of everything. Right. And they did a pit maneuver, which is the pursuit intervention technique, and they spun me out of control and shoved me up on an embankment. And I remember stepping on the gas to try to get away, and the vehicle wasn't going anywhere because the damage that had been done right. going up over the curb and onto the embankment. Yeah. And I remember thinking I need to find something. It was one of the only times I never didn't have a gun with me at the time. And I remember reaching, looking for something to hold up so the cops would shoot and kill me because I did not want to go back to prison for the rest of my life. And you were okay with that? I was completely okay with it. Wow. There was a number of agencies. There was Huntington Beach PD was there, Costa Mesa. I didn't know this at the time. I found out later. Right. Costa Mesa PD, uh, uh, Anaheim, uh, Parole. So there was a number of agencies there, and I remember as I'm looking for something, they're getting closer and closer at gunpoint. I remember them approaching the vehicle and opening it from the outside, and the gun basically in my mouth, telling you know, telling me to give them a reason. And they pull me out of the vehicle and they slam me on the ground and they commence to give me the worst beating of my life. I remember as I was, I felt like I was going out. You don't remember these things until you come to later. Right. And the last words I remember hearing the cops say were, "Stop! Stop! You're going to kill him." Because we were in a parking lot there at Magnolia and Atlantic, and there was a lot of people in the parking lot. It was, it was a strip mall. It was an Alpha Beta or some grocery store. Right. There. Uh-huh. So I remember waking up eventually in the county jail, and uh, I knew I was done. I'm probably going to go to prison for the rest of my life. And the first time I didn't go to court, they didn't make me a deal. But the second time that I went to court, the deal was 29 years. So as I mentioned earlier many 29. times, two, then five, then six, then 10, and now I'm looking at 29 years which essentially would have been the rest of my life. Yeah, essentially, yeah. You know, I would have spent a big chunk of my adult life in prison, and I probably am going to spend the rest of my life there and probably die there. Yeah. And wow. I knew that uh, I knew that I was probably done. And I was tired. I was broken. I was scared. You know, my... And they beat you up, like you were saying. They worked decent. you over. Yeah, pretty decent. Yeah. So did you have to go to the hospital from that point? No, I didn't did go to the just... hospital. I remember when they pulled me out and they slammed me on the ground. They were I was basically on my stomach when they were beating me on my back. Mm. So it wasn't it wasn't real bad, but it was the worst beating I'd taken by the cops before. Sure. You sure. know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm handcuffed at the time, you know, as they put the handcuffs on, they're still beating me. You know, so I was bruised yeah. and battered, but you know, nothing that was gonna require a hospital. Right. Gotcha. It was just the infirmary, I think, for the first couple of days and then to my cell. Wow. Unbelievable. You know, and truth be told, I had every bit of it coming. Yeah. There's no, it, it, you know, people always say that there's, uh, not to get into all of the police brutality, but if I didn't put myself in that position, none of it could happen. Yeah. It was my own damn fault. Yeah. And if I was a cop chasing Dave DeRocher, I'd have probably done the same thing, especially <laughs> knowing his background and, you know, the fact that he's got weapons and just the kind of animal I had become. Yeah. So I, I who can blame him? Right. You know? Yeah. And that's what I love about you is you all, you take full responsibility. You're not trying to point fingers or blame someone mm-hmm. else. You realize, hey, uh-uh. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that, and that's one of the things that we try to. I try to push on my own clients is like you're responsible, mm-hmm. period, kind of thing. Look, so I every, love that about you. Everything good that's ever happened to me is a result of the decisions I made to put myself in a position to be there. Everything bad is my own fault. Right. You know, nobody ever yeah. forced me to get high. Nobody ever forced me to go to prison. I asked to go to prison by the way I was living. Exactly. I I asked to go to prison every time I started dealing dope again. That was my decision. Nobody forced me to do it. I knew what I was doing when I was doing it. And we make excuses today in this country for drug addicts. We make excuses for them, which gives them reason to continue to use and continue to relapse by trying to make it everybody else's fault. Yeah. You know, basically, drug use is a decision, especially once you get clean. Once you've been clean for a second, you choose to use again, that is a damn decision. Exactly. Yeah. 
Amen to that. And I'm, I'm with you. You and I agree on that 100%. It comes down to choosing it. Mm-hmm. Right? You're not broken. Mm-hmm. You're not damaged. You don't have a disease. All that BS Ugh. that we all buy into. Right. Or the world is bought into. Right. And it's so fascinating when you break someone out of that mold or out of that belief system. They go, oh, yeah. It is a decision. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful. decision. Yeah. It's powerful. Well, so now you're facing 29 years. Yeah. So what, kind of go through what happened next. So I'm facing 29 years. I uh, I know I need to do something, but I'm not sure what to do. And I write Delancey Street a letter. And Delancey Street's a two-year re-education facility. There are five of them throughout the country. San Francisco, Los Angeles, New Mexico, North Carolina, and New York. In that order, by size. Okay. Uh, San Francisco being the headquarters. So I wrote Los Angeles Delancey Street a letter. And they came and they interviewed me and they accepted me. And the judge told me in no uncertain terms, Mr. DeRocher, I will never let you go to Delancey Street. You are not Delancey Street material. Mm. So I go back to my cell and I'm completely dejected. And I go, well, you know, I'm going to continue to fight my case in the county jail, pre-sentence, and try to get it down to something manageable. I had already said to myself, if I can get somehow, some way, get it down to 15 years, I'll sign. Two years, five years, six years, 10 years, then 15. You know, that was in my head. That's manageable, right? Wow. And uh, while fighting my case for many, many, many months, I decided to write the judge a letter. And I wrote him a letter. I remember it was on legal, yellow legal pad, and it was four pages front and back. And I told him my story from my earliest memory till the day I wrote that letter. And I remember telling him, Your Honor, I'm not, I never once told him he was wrong in his assessment of me because he wasn't. Yeah. But I asked him, I said, what do you got to lose, Your Honor? If you send me to Delancey Street and I change my life, you'll never see me again until I come back and say thank you. Yeah. Or you send me there and I get kicked out or I split inside that two years, you get to lock me up for the rest of my life and you never see me again. So what do you have to lose, Your Honor? That's a good point. And I remember <laughs> uh, going to court month, month and a half later in ankle irons, waist irons, handcuffed, and I'm sitting in the cage in my jumpsuit. And he says, Mr. DeRocher, against my better judgment, I'm going to give you the opportunity of a lifetime. And I'm going to send you to Delancey Street. And I remember feeling vertigo. You know, that Uh, feeling you get when you get really good news or really bad news, really good or bad news. You get that, like, dizzy feeling. Mm -hmm. I remember thinking to myself, what did he just say? Yeah. I'm getting out of jail to go to a program? you got to be kidding me. (laughs) So the funny thing is, my parents lived in Vegas at the time. So I notify them that night that I'm going to uh, Delancey Street. They had known I was working up to it. Right. They drove from Las Vegas to Orange County, and they were sitting outside the jail just down the street <laughs> at Lacey. I get released about 6.30 in the morning, and there's a girl in the parking lot, and she picks me up. I jump in her car. We drive across the street to the block. We, uh, we talk for a while, if you will. Mm-hmm. I get out of her car. I run back over to the jail, and I get into my girlfriend's car, who was actually supposed to be there to pick me up and we take off. Hours go by. I'm in an apartment. We're doing our thing. I'm supposed to be at Delancey Street. The 29 years had come down to 22. So I had a 22 year prison sentence suspended over my head. I'm hours late now. I'm getting really close to using and I have this epiphany that I better not or I'm never gonna make it and I'm gonna go spend the rest of my life in prison. And I called my mom and dad in the parking lot. And my mom is in hysterics. I could barely oh, understand her imagine. on the phone. Yeah. She's screaming at me on the phone that she knows where I'm at and she knows what I'm doing and she's going on and on. And I said, mm-hmm. Mom, I'm coming. She said, you have 15 minutes to get here or your dad and I are leaving. 
So I have Jennifer drive me back to my mom and dad, and they're there waiting for me in the parking lot. And I jump in the vehicle and we go to Delancey so Street. So you were this close. I was at just I was at I, mean, I was just... literally seconds away from making wow. a decision that would have changed the trajectory of my life forever. Forever. And I wouldn't be sitting here today. Making a choice. Making a choice. You were this close from making mm-hmm. the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. I already made a couple that, that morning it wrong. You. Yeah. Wow. I wouldn't be sitting here today. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's so, amazing. They drive me to Delancey Street. I get there really late. Uh, luckily I hadn't used, so they conducted the second interview and they took me and, uh, two year, it's, it's a two year program minimum. Yeah. But the beautiful thing is you can stay longer if you need to. And I realized at 18 months that I needed to stay longer. I wasn't ready to graduate. Yeah. And I ended up staying in Delancey street for eight and a half years. Eight and a half. The last five years of that stay, I managed the Los Angeles facility, which were upwards of 200 to 250 residents at any given time. 15 vocational training schools that many of which generated the revenue that helped us keep the doors open. I had a lot of help. I, I managed the facility. I was called uh, the head of Vatican, but you know, I had a lot of other people that, you know, helped also, you know, manage the facility, right. but it was by far the best decision I ever made, not just in going, but in staying yeah. long enough for me to really change the person I was, because change takes a long time. Getting clean and sober is easy. Yeah. They can throw me in jail and get me clean and sober. I can be clean and sober for a year. I'm going to get out and go right back to using. Getting people clean and sober is not the answer. We have it wrong in this country. Change is the answer. Because drug addicts inherently, I was a liar, a cheat, a thief, a manipulator. I was violent. I was a hedonistic, self-centered, self-seeking, no good, uh, there's other adjectives I'll use, but sure. uh, I'll save those. Yeah. Person at that time. Yeah. And I had to learn to be honest, to have integrity, and to be accountable, and that takes time. Those are your three principles you always tout. Mm-hmm. T- tell me why. Um, or tell us why. I mean, I love those. I agree with you, but you're really adamant I, I about I think those. drug addicts inherently have something in common. Everybody, all drug addicts, there are no exceptions. If you're a dope fiend... You're a liar, you're a cheat, yeah. you're a thief, and you're a manipulator. Yeah. And if you get clean and sober, but you don't fix those things, you're going back to dope. Right. If you're still a liar and a cheat and a thief and a manipulator and hedonistic and don't care about anybody but yourself, you're getting high again. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. Period. Yeah. If you change those things and you become a person of integrity, because really if you have integrity, nothing else matters. If you don't have integrity, nothing else matters. And you do the right thing for the right reasons. And you learn to be accountable when you make a mistake, you own it. Yeah, I love that part when you say own it. Own it. Just own Own it. it. We're human. Everybody makes mistakes. Learn to own it. Uh, If you're honest about everything in your life, Mm -hmm. everything. So if you learn to be honest, if you learn to be accountable, and if you learn to have integrity, there's a very, very strong possibility you're not going back to drugs again. You just don't. Once you have a value-centered life of integrity... I don't want to throw it away. I'll never throw it away again. Yeah. And that sounds like something when you're at Delancey Street that you started to kind of embrace those principles. Mm-hmm. You started to live those <clears throat> principles. Is that yeah. kind of where it all kind of started to come together for you? It was. It wasn't easy because I think men more than women suffer from uh, pride. Yeah. And I think that what I've learned over the past, I don't know, 30, 35 years, especially the past 13 is that men especially who've spent a lot of time as a drug addict and a lot of time in jail and prison, we get this false sense of pride because of the work that we're willing to put into in jail or in prison.
being violent, making a, you know, a name for yourself, creating right. a reputation. We start to fill ourselves with this false pride and that makes it really hard to be vulnerable. And if you're not vulnerable, it makes it hard to be honest yeah. and it makes it hard to be accountable. Wow. And if you're not honest and accountable, then you can't change. Right. So it took me a while to really get past and get over who I thought I was. Because right. truth be told, I was a piece of shit. Yeah. At least I was living like one. Sure, sure. Um, there was somebody decent in there, but it was way down there. It was when buried. I, it was buried. <laughs> Quite and a I, ways. Yeah, and I had, to, uh, I had to learn that I had nothing to be proud of. I yeah. didn't raise my kids. I destroyed those relationships. I didn't go to college. I didn't have a formal education. Mm-hmm. I didn't own my own business. Yeah. I lied and cheated with everybody that I knew and destroyed every relationship I was ever in. Um, I was violent. I was mean. I was nasty. Mm-hmm. So what in the hell did I have to be so proud of? Right. You know, and once I once that was said to me, I'll never forget that conversation. What in the hell did I have to be so proud of? Yeah. You know, and how can you be somebody in jail or prison? You can't be somebody in jail or prison. Right. That person doesn't exist. You can't get any lower than jail or prison. That's the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. You know, the only place to go from there is six feet under. Right. So how can you be proud or have pride when you're living in a cell with another man, you know, that poops on a toilet three feet from where you eat? Right. You know, I mean, how do you, how can I be proud of that? But that's how bad it got for me. I was full of false pride and it took me a while to, to shed that. Wow. So you're in Delancey Street for eight and a half years, is that Mm -hmm. what you said? So let's kind of transition a little bit and kind of move forward to where, you know, you're the managing director of the Other Side Academy, which is seriously like my favorite place. Seriously, mine too. It's like it's like Nirvana. You step on you step on that property, and it's like you feel this energy there, and it's patterned after Delancey Street. But you're obviously a huge part of that. So maybe kind of tell our listeners how that all kind of came about. Um, Joseph Grenny is our founder. So Tim Stay is our CEO. Joseph Grenny is our founder. I'm the managing director. Joseph Grenny wrote a book 13 or 14 years ago. He's written four New York Times bestselling books. Mm-hmm. One of them is called The Influencer. In The Influencer, he featured a lady by the name of Mimi Silbert. She is the president of Delancey Street. Joseph is a world-renowned social scientist and author. And he was going all over the world looking for people who are influencing change. And uh, people were pointing towards Mimi and Delancey Street. And uh, he went and he interviewed her. And one of the chapters in The Influencer was about Mimi Silbert and what she's done with recidivism at Delancey Street. Mm-hmm. And I think the seed was planted for Joseph then that maybe someday I'd like to do this in Utah. Fast forward a few years, a um, couple of Joseph's sons got into drugs and found themselves going in and out of jail countless times and their lives had become a mess. Mm-hmm. The fact that neither one of them went to prison really is fascinating, but you know, one of them in particular had gone to jail many, many, many times. and. Uh, Joseph, you know, was beside himself. Joseph is a wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, just a great, one of the greatest men I've ever known. And uh, he didn't know what to do. And he eventually, you know, through a, a serendip- serendipitous chain of events in jail, one of his sons met Zach Fawcett. And Zach Fawcett reached out to Joseph and said, could you help me get to Delancey Street when I get done doing my 15 years here in prison? And Joseph said, yeah. And he hung up the phone and he thought, that wasn't good enough. And, uh, was able to write Zach while he was in jail. And long story short, Joseph reached out to Jeff Buman, who was the prosecuting attorney in Utah County. And uh-huh. 
they were able to get Zach Fawcett from Utah to Delancey Street in in San Francisco, get the interstate compact. There was a lot more to the story than that, but that's right, right. that's generally how it happened. Okay. And then they were able to get four other guys from Utah to Delancey Street in San Francisco. And Joseph said, that's it. We need this here. Yeah. So we took Jeff Buman. He took a number of other prominent figures in the community. Uh, I, I'd say probably 15 people to Delancey Street in San Francisco for a two-day replication training, which okay. means they went up and kind of got immersed into the culture, if you will. Right. But let's not put too much on immersion training and the culture. You only learn what they want you to learn. They didn't really learn a lot. And what they left right. there saying was, wow, yeah. we need this in Utah, and we can do it. We can raise the money. We can do it. But my God, who's going to run it? We can't run it. We don't know anything about it. Yeah, right. So uh, (laughs) they started to scrub Facebook and scrub LinkedIn, and they found Charlotte Baker, who was in Delancey Street for 38 years. And after I'd left Delancey Street, Charlotte and I stayed in in contact, and she called me one day, and she says, Dave, there's these guys in Utah that want to start a replication of Delancey Street. And I start laughing on the phone. I'm like, yeah, right. (laughs) Somebody else wants to try this? And she says, well, I'm going to meet them on Friday. If they're not crazy, is this something you would be interested in? I said, are you serious, Charlotte? They have to be crazy if they want to do this. Right. So anyway, she she comes to Utah and she meets Joseph and Tim and she calls me that Saturday. She says, Dave, they're dead serious. And uh, I said, are you serious, Charlotte? She says, yeah. Is this something you'd be interested in? I said, yeah, it is. She says, you want to meet them? I says, I sure do. So not, not even a week later, Tim and Joseph fly to Los Angeles. We meet at LA Live at Fleming's. Mm. And uh, I remember sitting down at the dinner table and I says, before you guys ask me a single question, who in the hell are you? <laughs> what makes you think you can do this? Yeah. What is your genesis of thought behind this? Right. Make me understand why you want to do this. Who are you? Because you're not like us. Right. And, right. Uh, and Joseph spent about 15, 20 minutes telling me his story. Mm-hmm. Tim did the same. And I knew then these guys are for real. Yeah. And at the end of the dinner, a couple hours later, Joseph asked me, he says, so are you willing to come to Utah? I said, Joseph, I'll go to the moon if you don't quit in six months when it gets hard. Yeah, I love, every time you say that, mm-hmm. I love that. Because you put it on them saying, because it's going to get hard. It's going to get hard. Right, and most, what do most people do? They quit. They quit. So, wow. uh, maybe two weeks later, I flew to Utah, and Tim drove me around Utah, and we, uh, he just kind of showed me the lay of the land, if you will, and we started looking at properties, and we looked at many, many properties. And then we started coming out and doing what we refer to as cottage meetings at Joseph's home mm-hmm. in Provo. And it was me and it was Alan Faringer and Lola Zagi, two other Delancey Street graduates that yeah. I'm best friends with that actually started the Other Side Academy. But now we have some other staff members. We've got Mo Egan, Chris Nelson, Sharon uh, Tidwell, um, Steve Strong. There's seven of us now and we're all Delancey Street graduates, six of us from the LA facility and one from San Francisco. Wow. That's awesome. But we eventually bought a uh, two properties in Salt Lake City, the old Armstrong Mansion bed and breakfast at 700 East, 100 South, and the apartment complex next door. Those were the two first buildings that yeah. we got. And we eventually bought two more properties to the north of that that are both uh, complete rundown buildings, one of which we're in the middle of con- uh, doing remodeling right now, turning into a large dining space and commercial kitchen. The other one we just got permission to demolish. That was a year and a half process. Yeah. We're literally, as we speak right now, buying both apartment complex across the street from us um, so we can house more students and take more people off the streets and out of jails and prisons. And we currently have 77 students, and wow. we, we plan on taking another 100 once we acquire the 
the bigger apartment complex across the street because one of the two that we're currently in the process of trying to buy we're subleasing so we already have students there but we want to save as many lives as we possibly can and i think if i may i'll, I'll talk a little bit about what the other side academy Please, is yes absolutely we are replicating in large part delancey street save for the fact that we've made some changes at the beginning, we've made some changes at the end. I won't go into all of the different changes that I think will make us far more successful, and it already has. Yeah. Um, not to in any way, shape, or form diss Delancey Street because it is a wonderful organization that has graduated 25,000 people back into the community, and it's Amazing. literally, literally saved my life. If it wasn't for Del Delancey Street, I would still be in prison today on that 22-year prison sentence. Yeah, we wouldn't be talking. We wouldn't be talking. Yeah. So I owe Delancey Street my life. But I also learned uh, uh, you know, during that eight and a half years that we could probably do some things better. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do. We want to do good better. Yeah. And, and we are. And uh, we don't take any money from the government. We take no money from the city, no money from the county, no money from the state, no money from the federal government. We're a minimum two years long. You can stay longer if need be. Mm -hmm. And we don't charge the student anything. So people go, well, wait a second. How do you do it? How do you support yourselves? Yeah. We have vocational training schools that generate our revenue. Our moving company earns the lion's share of our revenue. We do about 150 to 175 moves a month. All of the money that we generate on the moving company comes back into the facility so we can continue to help people without charging them. We are already the number one rated moving company in Salt Lake City. Wow. If you go on Thumbtack, on Yelp, or any other social sites, you'll be stuck for hours and hours and hours reading all of the hundreds and hundreds of five-star reviews. Amazing. We opened up a thrift boutique on State Street in Murray. We're already the number one rated thrift store in Salt Lake City. We have a food truck that we use sparingly, but it is one of our vocational training schools. Right, yeah. And those are the ones that generate the revenue. Then we have food service, construction, corporate development, just to name a few. So then when the student gets there, rather than laying around in a fuzzy little pair of slippers and a robe with a counselor telling them that it's everybody else's fault, that it was really bad timing that you arrived and the cops got there at the same time, damn cops, or it was mommy and daddy's fault because of the way they treated you, or it was because of this, or it was because you were of that. You bullied when you were five. Yeah, I don't care what happened to me when I was seven, Todd. When I was 33 years old doing dope and putting guns in people's mouth and taking their stuff, I wasn't going, I'm doing this because what happened when I was seven. Right. I knew what was wrong when I was doing it. So yeah. the minute they get there, we make them accountable for their decisions. Love Past, that. present, and future. Love it. And so, as I mentioned, no money from the government, vocational training schools, the minute the students walk through the door, they become part of the solution rather than part of the problem. No one's paying their way. They're paying their own way by paying it forward, by getting up every day and going to work and having a good attitude and going to bed. Getting up, going to work, having a good attitude, going to bed. <laughs> now, in between all of that, those behaviors I spoke about earlier, the lying and cheating <laughs> right. and thieving and manipulating, those behaviors will manifest themselves yeah. throughout their daily routine. Mm -hmm. And we're going to address those on the spot, no lag time, in your face, hard, real, and right. raw. Yeah, That is the way we hear it. Or we can do what we've been doing for countless years in this country and we can sit down on a couch and we can go oh poor Todd yeah. are you okay how are you feeling <laughs> and give the drug addict more excuse to be the person that he's been all these years yeah. yeah or we can give it to him raw and uncut and tell him just who they're being yeah. and how they're acting and give them consequences just like you have in life yeah wow and make them responsible for their behaviors and responsible for their decisions and I love that we have no doctors that. we have no therapists we have no clinicians it is an each one teach one philosophy. And people go, oh, how do you do it with no doctors? 
Well, my question is, how do you do it with them? No, no disrespect intended, but the best way that I can put that into, I can make that sense of that is giving birth. I can take delivery of the child. Mm -hmm. I can cut the umbilical cord. I can give the baby its first breath and I can do that a thousand times and I can still never tell you what it's like to give birth. I don't give a shit who you are or what you right. think. If you've never been a drug addict and you've never lived your life on the streets and you've never done time in jails and prisons, how do you really, really know what we're going through when we're going through it? Right. Because you read it on page 73 of the manual. Yeah. You, how do you connect with somebody if you've never really been there and done that? You only know what you think you know and you don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. So people like us, helping people like us, is the balm for our wounds. I love that. Each one, teach Each one. Each one, teach one. Yep. When A helps B, A gets better. Yeah. I love that. That is amazing. And what I love about you, you personally, and the way you live your life, and then the other side of Academy, it's just it's about just being a good person. Mm-hmm. It's not rocket science. Mm-mm. Be a good person. Yep. Right? I mean, isn't yep. that really what it comes down to? That is what it comes down to. Yeah. As I said earlier, we can get people clean and sober all day. We can, hell, we can lock them up, put them in jail, and ensure there's no drugs there. They're clean and sober while they're in jail. I mean, think about it. Sure. Put them in jail for a year. Make sure there's no dope. They're clean and sober. What's the first thing they do when they leave? Go right to Flacco's house. <laughs> Straight to Flacco to pick up. But they've been clean and sober for a year. Yeah. They didn't change. Nothing changed. You, nothing changed. Yeah. They're still a liar. Still, as a matter of fact, it got worse because they're in jail around other people just like them, lying and cheating and thieving and stealing. Hell, they're calling home, collect half the time, telling their families that they love them. Hi, Mom and Dad. It's me, Dave. I love you. I love you. I miss you. Are you going to come visit me this weekend? And the only reason why you want them to come visit is so they can put money on your books on the way out. Right. If I loved them, I wouldn't be calling them collect, making them pay for the collect call, and I certainly wouldn't subject them to jail to come visit my punk ass while I'm there when I didn't come visit them when I was on the street. Exactly. I mean, yeah. think about the the irony in that. Yeah. Or the kids. You know, how often do we say we love our kids? I, if you'd have asked me 20 years ago, I'd have told you I love my boys too. I didn't give a shit about them. If I did, I would have raised them. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we start to, to lie to ourselves because, as I said, we're liars. Yeah. So part of the, I know part of the uh, rules, if you want to call it, at the Other Side Academy is you can't get in contact with your kids, for, is it for a year? So or? there's no contact with your kids for 15 months or longer. Okay. And some people go, oh my God, that's too long, that's cruel. Really? So a guy that's been to jail 27 to our average student's been to jail 26 times <laughs> that's been to jail 26 times that has three kids let's just say they're six eight and ten he's been to jail 26 times so he's in their life out of their life in their life out of their life in their life out of their life in their life out of like 26 times and every time he sees them when he gets out of jail he doesn't even have to promise them that he's not going to go back yeah. just the fact that he's standing before his kids says that daddy's home and then he's incarcerated again and how many times did he get arrested in front of the kids how many times did right. the door get kicked in in front yeah. of the kids as a matter of fact how many times did he have those kids can visit him in jail and how many times did he subject his kids to jail what the hell did they do yeah and then, that. yeah, and then little Bobby goes to school on Monday morning and goes, oh my God, I got to see my daddy. You know, my daddy's so cool when he goes to school. Fast forward the tape 10 years, guess where he ends up? Yeah. I thought you said you loved him. Yeah. If you love your kids and you're a drug addict and you're a criminal, leave them the hell alone. Get as far away from them as you can. That's the best thing you could do until you recalibrate your moral compass and become a decent human being. Wow. 
I love that. Wow. That's so powerful, but yet so hard for a criminal in the beginning to even mm -hmm. accept. Yeah, it wasn't easy for me either, but it yeah. was a raw, it was the truth. It's the truth. Slap you up outside the head, right? You know. It's just like, hello. So we were going to make him wait 15 months because it, most places you can start seeing them that weekend at 30 days. Yeah. Well, my question is that weekend or 30 days later, those kids are coming to visit the same person that they were when they were using. Yeah. 30 days hasn't, they're, they're still the same drug addict. Yeah. They're still the nothing's changed. Why would you subject the kids to that again? Yeah. Besides, grandma and grandpa are raising them. Aunt and uncle's raising them. They've been fostered out wherever the kids might be. Yeah. You know, and why do you want to subject your kids to a drug program? And the reason why you're bringing them there isn't for the kids. The reason why you're bringing them there is because it makes you feel good. Look, everybody, it's my trophy again. Yeah. I, you know, and I'd use another adjective for trophy right, right before that word. <laughs> Look what I've got. I've got these kids. And yeah. why would you do that to them again yeah. before you've changed? Because if you don't change, you're going to go back to that same lifestyle. And who suffers again? Exactly. The, the kids. kids. Yeah. <clears throat> if you are married or you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a husband or a wife, there's no contact with that person for 18 months or longer. And people go 18 months... Well, let's let's dive into that for a second. If <laughs> yeah. you're a drug addict and you're a criminal, who are you dating? Yeah. Probably a drug addict or a criminal. <laughs> so that relationship is already toxic. What in the hell would we let you visit that person for? And let's say you're a drug addict or a criminal and you're dating somebody who has never used drugs and never committed a crime. She's crazy, crazier than you for dating you. So that relationship is probably toxic. But we're not going to give you relationship uh advice early on. We're just going to let you go through the process and change. And then hopefully by the time you get to 18 months, you realize that that relationship was toxic to begin with exactly. and not want to go back to it. <clears throat> kind of like I did when I got to 18 months at Delancey Street. Yeah. You just kind of realized. Yeah. I wasn't going back to those girls I met in the parking lot when I got out of jail. Yeah. I was done with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, unhealthy attracts unhealthy. When you get healthy, mm -hmm. you realize that's unhealthy. Mm -hmm. You know, you see it. For and what drug it addicts for me, because I was a drug addict at such a young age, mm -hmm. you know, at 12 years old, going forward to 38, yeah. I didn't even, I've never in my entire life until recent years been in a healthy relationship because I didn't have one with me. Yeah. So how in the hell am I going to bring one to somebody else? Yeah. I didn't know how to be honest with myself. Yeah. How can I be in a relationship and be honest with anybody, male or female, friend or girlfriend, Yeah. if I can't be honest with me? Yeah. And, and you know, I love you, you say if you're dating someone who doesn't use, like, oh, they're clean, they're mm -hmm. good. What do you say about them? They're crazier than we are. <laughs> right. I mean, think about it. If somebody was dating me when I was out there doing what I was doing, dealing drugs and guns and all the violent stuff, and she had never used and never committed crimes, she needs more help than I do. Yeah. What does that say about her? Right. Being willing to date somebody like me, what does that say about where she's at emotionally? Right. Yeah. She's crazy. Yeah. Er than me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's hard to do. No. Um, so let's, uh, wow, this is fascinating. There's so much to this story that uh, just, you know, gives me goosebumps. Um, tell, let's tell our listeners, like, what, what does the day in the life look like now for Dave? Mm. Like, what, what does it look like now? So I'm the managing director at the Other Side Academy, and we've been here for two and a half years. And today I get to get up every day and help people just like me get from where I used to be to where I'm at today. Mm -hmm. I get to mentor the students. I get to discipline the students. I get to love the students. D all the above. Mm -hmm. I get to show up 
I get to be there when they need somebody to be there. I get to give them to them raw and uncut the way that they need to hear it. Um, I get to interview them when they come through the front door and take a seat on our bench or interview them in jail when they're at their complete worst, when they're completely broken and maybe get them out of jail and get them there and watch them grow into decent people and eventually reintegrate back with their children, eventually reintegrate back with their families. And now I've got, I don't know, 15, 18 graduates and watch them go out into the community and get jobs and live productive lives. There's so much more to it. I, I get to be a part of all of that. Yeah. I get to be a part of a movement yeah. with this type of uh, uh, therapeutic community, if you will. Yeah. As we continue to expand and grow, we've got other states. Uh, Denver uh, is looking at us. We've already been out there a number of times and met with the mayor and the governor there and done a fundraiser at the governor's mansion. Mm-hmm. They've raised a considerable amount of money. They're looking for a property. We've been to Peoria, Illinois. They've got a property. They're in the process of raising the money. We've been to San Diego a few times. They've been to us, and they've already raised a substantial amount of money, and they're currently doing a feasibility study in in San Diego trying to find a property that they might be able to just give to us because they want us to bring the model there. So our goal is to to have at least one other side academy in every state in this country, if not every metropolitan city, by 2050. I probably won't be around anymore, but... I'll do everything I can between now and that time to see to it that that happens. Get that ball rolling. Get in that, that ball rolling for sure. Within the next year, we'll be either in San Diego, Denver, or Peoria. You know, within a right. few years, we'll be in all three of those. Yeah. And there's other states that are reaching out. Atlanta's reaching out. Texas has expressed some interest. So the country is hearing about it. I assure you that in the next 25 years, hell, the next 10 years, Tosa will be a household name. Yeah. In the next 25 years, it'll be the place that people go to. Wow. You know, it'll just be the the place for people to go get the help that they need. Yeah. So will they be sending you? Will you be going to these new places and helping them? Kind of like what you did here in Utah mm-hmm. to get the ball rolling there and get, so, it, get it going right? Our biggest constraint right now is leadership. Yeah. It's hard to find people. You know, you can find people that have the heart to do this. Right. And you can find people that have the aptitude to do this. But to find people that possess both is a challenge. Yeah. So we're raising our own leaders, but that takes time. Mm-hmm. I think if we were to open in San Diego tomorrow, I don't know that I would go permanent. Excuse me, I don't know that I would go permanently. Um, I might go for a while, Just but to, a couple yeah. of my staff members would go, mm-hmm. and we'd send a cadre of older students to also help get started, and we would probably do that. I would end up overseeing both sites, probably from Salt Lake yeah. City. At least that's our 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 conversations now. Right. That's what it looks like. That could change because we're in the process of looking for other Delancey Street graduates that have gone through the system and have been in Delancey Street for four or five or six years that possess what it takes to do this kind of work Um, because it's not easy. Right. And I think a lot of people want to do it but don't have what it takes to do it. It really is a, it's not a job, it's a... Well, it's kind of like what you told Joseph. You said, um, yeah, I'll come do this as long as you don't quit when it gets hard. Right. That's what leadership is, is right. to stick through it when it gets difficult, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to do that. So that makes sense. Important. And all of my staff members, myself included, we live on property. We don't yeah. punch in at eight o'clock in the morning and punch out at five. Yeah, you... We live on property. We are there with them 24. I live in the facility with the students. Wow. 
I'm the only one in in the in the mansion with them, mm-hmm. but my other staff members live next door in the apartment complex and across the street in the apartment mm-hmm. complex with the students. So we're there, we're there with them. You know, we are them. We're yeah. just farther removed. Wow, that's incredible. Well, um, so if if you could go back, I mean, and I know you wouldn't. I mean, obviously you are the man you are today because of what you went through. I'm a I'm a believer on life happens for you. You know, this was all a part of it, and mm-hmm. you are who you are because of all that hard stuff you went through. But if you could give some advice or go back, like, even to your younger self, like, what advice would you give these younger kids who are, you know, maybe dabbling in drugs or thinking about doing mm-hmm. or they've never done it and they're getting maybe ready to, what would you tell them? What would you want to tell them? Well, the first thing I would tell them is don't start because it's really, really difficult to tell a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old, a 14-year-old, or a young teenager that he's a drug addict. You don't even realize, I didn't even realize what, you know, in my mind at 13 years old, a drug addict was somebody in the gutter with a needle in his arm. I didn't realize I was quickly becoming a drug addict. But don't start. Um, The older I get, the smarter my parents have become. (laughs) Exponentially smarter. (laughs) Sure, sure. And I wish I would have, I wish I would have listened to them when they were pleading with me to stop. Mm -hmm. And I didn't. Yeah. And you know it's it's hard because kids don't usually listen when they're doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, you just kind of stop listening and you and you fall into that abyss, if you will. Right. But if I had to get some advice, listen to those who love you. Um. Don't start. Don't start drinking. Don't start smoking. Don't start smoking weed thinking it's only weed. Don't start because all of it is the gateway to other stuff. Right. It is the truth. I mean, very few twelve-year-olds slammed heroin in their arm the first time they ever got high it started with other stuff and then morphed into that sure um listen to the advice of people who care about you and love you whether it be your mom and dad whether it be your teacher whether it be a mentor in your life whether it be somebody you love and respect listen to their advice when you're 11 12 13 14 15 you don't know we think we know everything we don't know shit yeah we don't right you know, um, choose your friends wisely. A friend is not somebody you get high with. That's an accomplice. F- a friend, you know, at 13 years old, will tell on you when you're getting high. Will tell the teacher. Will tell your parents. Oh, I love that. Friends don't do things that harm them. Right. If you care about somebody, you're going to call them on their behavior. And that's a hard concept for children, especially teenagers. Yeah, to, right. It's a hard concept. Yeah. But it's the truth. Yeah. If you care about somebody, I mean, if you're 13 years old and you see your nine-year-old brother starting to get high, you're going to tell on them because you know what they're doing is bad for them. Yeah. Same principle. Yeah. Secrets kill. Oh, God. It kills do. you. Yeah. Absolutely. So don't start. And please, please, if you're young and you're heading down that road, listen to those who care about you and love you. They've only got your best interest at heart. Wow. I love it. You know, many, it. many people don't live through this. Yeah. Todd, you live through it. I live through it. <clears throat> Many people die as a result of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's why I think, you know, what's so fascinating about your story now is what you've been through and how much you're giving back now. You you have a TED Talk out there and it's titled, what's the title of it? Um, Former Criminals Reforming Criminals. Yeah. TEDx. And, and I think you even said it when you were speaking to my group. You're, you used to kind of, you know, take away life and now mm-hmm. you're giving back life almost. Um so talk a little bit about that. Like how, how would people look you up and to, to be able to find that? To find the TED Talk? Yeah. yeah. Uh, just uh, former criminals, reformer criminals, my name, Dave DeRocher. Uh, you could just TEDx Dave DeRocher and it'll pop up. Yeah. 
And uh, I think what I said in there was I spent the first half of my life helping people die. That's and I'm going to spend the rest of my life helping them live. And the way that I was living prior to 13 years ago, I was helping kill people, dealing dope, the violence, yeah. the broken lives, the kids I didn't raise. That was killing them. Yeah. Just my family, everybody. It's such a ripple effect. You don't even realize how many people you affect negatively when you're living like that. Right. And how many people I seriously hurt both emotionally and physically as a result of the person I had become. Yeah. That ripple effect is huge. I mean, I won't even get into the details of all the sure. the things that I did that I think that sometimes haunt me today. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, the great thing is all the good things you're doing now and the ripple effect of that mm -hmm. as well. And that ripple effect has actually affected me. You are seriously, I, 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 you're one of my mentors, whether you want to want to be mine or well, not. Thank you, Todd. But I look at you that way. Um, you make me want to be better, honestly. When I hear you speak the way you live your life, I want to be better. I want to be a good person. I love how you just it's simplified. You just be a good person. Mm -hmm. And I check myself. And every time I hear you speak, I just I check myself again and go, okay, where do I need to be better? So listeners, I challenge you as well. Be a good person. It really comes down to that. What does that look like? And inherently, we know what that is. We know that, don't yeah. we? I think we get lost in the day-to-day -day grind, and we get we start to have a uh, an affair with our checkbooks. It becomes about the grind, and it becomes about making money. And those things are important, but are they the most important thing? Right. The most important thing we can do from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed is to make it about other people. What are you doing today for other people? Right. What are you doing to give back? What are you doing service-wise? What are you doing to, to help others? Or is your day-to-day -day existence about me, me, me? Because even if you're not a drug addict, most people suffer from the disease of me. It is all about me, all about me, 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 more, that. more. The disease of me, we all suffer from it. Wow, the, the disease of me. So beautifully put, um, Dave. I want to thank you for being on this uh, Belief Cast podcast mm. of mine. Um, I can't wait for my listeners to hear you and hear this story. Um, I can't wait for you to send that out to people that you know as well. And again, just influencing these people to uh, be better people it's just it's an amazing thing um you know so listeners look up the other side academy it's an amazing program uh you know get involved whatever way you can and help them out um look up dave look up at his ted talk um any other um thing you'd want them to reach out to to to, to reach out to you um any just other? if you know somebody who is suffering if you know somebody who is uh living life the way i used to live people who are out there living on the streets, in jails, in prisons, um, addicted to the lifestyle, if you will. Let them know that the Other Side Academy exists. Take them to our website. It's a, it's a fantastic website. There's some great videos and countless FAQs. And I assure you that when they're done watching the website, they'll know whether or not the Other Side Academy is for them. Yeah. And if it is and they can get through a robust interview, they need nothing more than their genu genuine desire to change. They wow. need nothing else other than themselves and their willingness to do something different. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dave, for being on this. Thank you for being who you are. Uh, you're inspiring, and I'm grateful that we're friends. Well, thank you, Todd. I feel the same. It's a mutually inclusive relationship because 
you're an inspiration to me and I consider you a mentor. Right. Thank you. So thank you. That means a lot. Seriously, that means a lot. So thank you for being on. Listeners, can't wait for you to sh- listen to this and then share it with someone like you, like Dave just said, someone you know who might be struggling. Share this story with anyone and everyone that you know. This message needs to get out. So thank you for uh, listening and appreciate your support.